This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Here at Self Work, we discuss psychological and emotional issues and what you can do about them. Whether that's learning self-acceptance, taking action, or seeking therapy or treatment. Eight years ago, I extended the walls of my practice to reach those of you who are already very knowledgeable about mental health treatment, but also to those of you who might say, you'd never darken the door of a therapist. And yet, you are here. I'll answer your questions while I invite you to take a few minutes for your own self-work. It's as if we are so afraid of pain or sorrow, of making a mistake, of not doing the right thing at the right time with the right person, at the right job, living in the right city, that we could spend hours in that corner in our home just thinking, overanalyzing, ruminating, pondering, not really feeling anything but fear. Welcome to this week's edition of Self Work. When I search for a topic each week, I often look at what's crossed my path that week. I decided a wonderful poem that someone in my Facebook group had posted would be a great basis or productive basis for our focus today. It's a poem by poet Rudy Francisco, and it's short, but speaks very plainly about the reality of worry. It's all about painting yourself into a corner, although much more eloquently than that. So many of us are living what-if lives, meaning that we're not looking at the present and at opportunities that might be right in front of us. Instead, we're worrying about the what-ifs or what-if-nots of the world, and that can keep you in a constant state of perpetual indecisiveness. Now, of course, foggy thinking is a part of depression, and worry is typically a part of anxiety or depression, actually. So, we'll weave all that together on this episode of Self-Work. Our SpeakPipe voicemail for today is also about anxiety, but she's talking about anticipatory anxiety as she stutters and experiences fear of ridicule because of that, understandably. So we're going to include her excellent question in the very discussion of anxiety. But before we go on, let's hear from AG1 and their spectacular offer in 2024 to self-work listeners. If you're a long-time listener, you might know I've been drinking AG1 for at least four years. When I started drinking AG1 daily, I could feel such a difference in my stamina. And when I would forget it on trips, which they have travel packs, so there's no excuse, I'm very aware of that lack of stamina. I recommend AG1 to my family and friends, and even my husband, who usually swears off things like this, has started drinking AG1. And he always tells me, as do my friends who are drinking it, that they feel like they're getting the nutrients their body craves. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs, like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. So get your free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash selfwork. That's drinkag1.com slash selfwork. I promise you, you're going to feel better. When I read Rudy Francisco's poem, I knew that many of you would find yourself in it. 
and I'm going to read it to you. So I'm quoting the poem. I'm the kind of person that will what if a situation until all the steam is gone. We'll think about the soup until it's cold and then stomach the after. I've been known to debate myself into a corner and call it home. That's it. The title of the poem is I'm the kind of person. And again, the poet is Rudy Francisco and it's from his book, Excuse Me As I Kissed the Sky. And I'll have a link to that book in the show notes. So what did I like so much about this poem? Because I see people do this all the time. They paint themselves into a corner so often with worry, with anxiety, with what-ifing, that it begins to feel like home to them. It's an uncomfortable-seeming state, a state of perpetual indecisiveness, as I said in the intro. You're scared to move to the right, scared to move to the left, scared to stay where you are, scared to let anyone know how indecisive you really are. And so, for that, you're living in a constant state of shame. And yet, as this poet points out, that place can begin to strangely feel like home, to feel so familiar that it has a sense of protection by not moving, by not making a decision, by not taking a risk. You may not hurt anyone's feelings or make a move that might displease or even cause conflict. But it's a dysfunctional protection. It's actually pseudo-protection. I watched the Diana Nyad movie this week as well. She's a famous swimmer who, after several attempts, swam from Cuba to Florida, a 107-mile journey in the water, making it even more dangerous than the sea creatures whose water she was swimming through, ones that could kill her, was the fact that she could get caught in certain tides or certain water flows, that she would be swimming as hard as she actually could, but making no progress. And yet, she by herself would be totally unaware of that. That is, without the guidance of a really good captain who knew the waters well and how she might get caught up in them, who could see what actual progress she was making rather than watching her expend energy in a direction that was non-productive. Again, the analogy may not be perfect, but my point is that Diana Nyad could feel that she was achieving when she was really standing still, and that had happened to her when she was a younger swimmer. So in these attempts, when she was 64 years old, she had a wiser guide and a wiser mind. It's actually, I think, a wonderful analogy of where so many of us are in our lives, especially if we struggle with depression and anxiety. Your worry, your fear can paint you into that corner, and yet that corner can feel safe and known. But you're not growing, you're not risking, you're quite paralyzed. It's as if we are so afraid of pain or sorrow, of making a mistake, of not doing the right thing at the right time with the right person, at the right job, living in the right city, recording the right topic for the right podcast, that we could spend hours in that corner in our home, just thinking, overanalyzing, ruminating, pondering, not really feeling anything but fear. We talked last week about rumination about the past, and the term I used was counterfactuals, which was a term I had never heard. The post was about grief, and one of the confounding factors about grief is if you were caught up in rumination in what-ifs, because that would mean you were living as if the person that you loved who had died, really hadn't died. Because what was going on in your head, you were asking questions like, well, what if this had happened, or what if that had happened? 
helping you keep the reality that the person could somehow still be living if that had happened. And what that does, it keeps you in a perpetual state of grief. Not just grief, but grief that's not moving along or growing in a healthy direction. Today, we're applying that idea not to the past, but to the future. When you worry, spending hours and hours thinking about the potential outcomes of a decision or act or experience. What this makes me think about is the need for certainty. I understand this need. We all feel as if we need to know what's about to happen in the next minute. For example, if I put my foot on the brake of my car, I want to be certain that it's going to stop the car. That seems pretty important. I could give hundreds of examples of that need for certainty. And it seems obvious that that need for certainty is also tied in with trust, that you begin to trust your car or trust a friend or trust your decision-making. It builds a sense of certainty. I often see this trust, for example, challenge when someone goes through trauma, when suddenly their lives that they thought was certain was no longer certain. And in order to continue feeling safe or even sane, the person has to go through a rebuilding of a sense of trust and certainty and even control, which can be very hard to do. Let's take our braking car, for example. If your brakes went out and you had an accident, obviously you would have some trauma around that. So you would have to probably work on trusting that brake in a new car or in your old car that was fixed. But worry doesn't create certainty. Worry doesn't create trust. Worry creates agitation. It can lead to catastrophic thinking, as it's called, or thinking that the worst thing that you can possibly imagine is going to happen. Worry is not the same as problem solving or assessing options and making decisions about which options is the most likely to turn out well, even though obviously you can't be completely certain of that. Maybe that's what's so difficult for so many, that we actually can never be completely certain. And of course, when it comes to the safety of those we love and of ourselves, that can become paramount. Yet, most of us live to learn with that concern. We tolerate it. We know bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, and you can only control so much. I guess what I'm suggesting is that to grow in your trust of yourself, worry is not the answer of how to do that. I've never learned anything personally that didn't involve feeling awkward or uncomfortable, at least at first. It certainly didn't feel right. What it felt was, and I had a hard time with this word, what it felt, I guess, most was open. And when I can tell with a client, when I can tell they're about to talk about something or open up a feeling that's important, but maybe they don't talk about it a lot, the patient will tell me, this is really uncomfortable. We talk about that discomfort and decide whether we need to sit with it or to go forward. It's not my job, as I see it, to push people into discomfort they're not ready to feel. It is my job as a therapist to help them discover what their fears are and to help gently face them. Whether those fears have to do with the past trauma or present difficulty, change often induces fear, risk, feeling vulnerable. And that feels far away from the place we might have been calling, quote-unquote, home, where we might feel protected, but we're also maybe staying in perpetual indecisiveness and emotional paralysis. 
Actually, the listener voicemail for this week is a wonderful example of the fear of leaving that home, that protection. But before I play that for you, let's hear from our new sponsor, Moonbird, who has a fantastic device that helps you breathe easier and calm yourself, especially at night when you can't sleep. We have a new sponsor on self-work, and the product is Moonbird. Used by over 25,000 people in Europe, Moonbird is the world's first tactile breathing coach designed to fit in the palm of your hand. When you couple it with their free app, you can begin to grapple with stress, anxiety, or insomnia as you're guided through soothing breathwork exercises. Now, what does it do? Moonbird uniquely measures your heart rate and heart rate variability to guide you to change your own breathing patterns. Basically, you hold a device in your hand and you can feel the pattern of it expanding and contracting and you follow it. Simple as that. And you don't have to stare at a screen. Just close your eyes and breathe. Go to this website, moonbird.life slash product. That's moonbird.life slash product. And enter the code SELFWORK for $10 off. Think of all the sleep aids you've bought over the years. I have a drawer full of them. I'm keeping Moonbird right by my bedside, and when I wake up at 2.30 like I usually do, I'm using it to go right back to sleep. Moonbird. It's what you can do about your stress and your insomnia and your life. Moonbird.life slash product and enter the code SELFWORK. And now to this week's voicemail. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Hi there, Dr. Margaret. This is probably my 15th time recording this message. Hopefully this one will be it. I've had a stutter my whole life, and I would love to know what are some things I can do about anticipatory anxiety? Because every time I pick up the phone or somebody calls me, or I'm talking to someone in the supermarket checkout line, you know, just these very simple day-to-day situations give me tremendous anxiety. And I feel my heart pounding whenever I try to get the words hello out. And even recording this message, my heart was just pounding when I hit the record button. I know that there are things one can do about this, but I don't really know what they are. And I would love to get some tips on that. A lot of speech therapists haven't been that helpful because they've just talked about the mechanics of speaking rather than the deep psychological stuff and the shame that one carries having any kind of a speech impediment, especially into adulthood, because there are just so many situations where you have to say something at a certain timing and on cue. And if you don't, it's awkward and the other person may laugh and that's like the worst. So anyway, love the uh, podcast. Thank you so much. Bye bye. I couldn't help but remember a wonderful movie directed and produced in 2010 called The King's Speech when I heard this listener's comments. That movie was all about King George VI who stuttered, or as the British call it, stammered when he spoke. And yet he had to give this very important speech talking about the end of World War II and congratulating the Brits for their courage and resilience. It's a wonderful movie if you haven't seen it. King George was a shy man, a very quiet man who had never expected to be crowned the King of England, but only was when his brother stepped down from that position, and so he was thrust into the public spotlight. In fact, Queen Elizabeth II, who recently died, was his daughter. 
In the movie, you could see his struggle to overcome both the physical or neurological patterns that were entrenched. It was very, very difficult. In fact, recent neurological studies do show neurodivergence in the way a stutterer's brain functions from someone who doesn't stutter. But I looked at that article and I didn't understand half the terms in it, so just know that's true. You know, I haven't worked with too many people with stuttering issues. In fact, only a handful come to mind. But in my experience, often trauma is involved, meaning that the stuttering or the stammering might have been actually a part of the trauma or as a result of the trauma. One woman I've seen been sexually abused by her brother and became a stutterer. There are other speech problems that have to do with abuse. Take the life of Maya Angelou, who described that her own elective mutism, meaning she chose not to speak for years, that occurred after she told about being raped at the age of seven. And after that, she learned that her rapist had been killed. And with a child's reasoning, she believed her words had killed him. So she stopped talking. So she wouldn't, quote-unquote, kill again. But back to this listener's voicemail and how it ties into the topic for today, which is paralyzing worry. It's interesting to hear that this listener's speech therapist didn't help her by referring her to a therapist to discover more the source of her anxiety. Rather, they just focused on the mechanisms of speech and what might help her control or decrease her stammer by understanding those mechanics. One of the things I always do when I have someone with some kind of problem that really needs a coaching help or someone to teach them, they may need physical therapy, they may need pelvic therapy, they may need a nutritionist. Those are the things that I cannot provide. So often it's important to work as a team with someone, especially when there's abuse or trauma involved. And that trauma is tied into what their present day problem is. Anticipatory anxiety, which is, of course, anticipating or visualizing something happening in the future, that's bad, and already feeling agitated or worried about what your response might be or what your body or what your mind might do in that situation. It's something that many people have to deal with, myself included. Some visualizing, some anticipation is actually very healthy because it helps you think through what you want your actions to be, what you think the environment might be like that you're about to be exposed to, and how you want to respond to it. It's planning, basically, and careful planning at that. And knowing how to carefully plan can be a huge skill. It's when anxiety and fear become a part of that planning, they override that planning, that things can go awry. And so that process becomes more of a ruminative process than it does a productive process. Worst possible scenarios begin to crop up in our minds, especially if we fear being negatively evaluated, as this listener does. She fears that others will laugh at her if she stutters or stammers. I'm sure she has been kidded about this. Children bully and belittle each other for anything that may make them different. And some adults aren't any different. Our own current president here in the United States is a man who has at times stuttered in his speeches and has been made fun of because of that. And I'm sure he was demeaned throughout his life for it. People can be mean. The listener makes a really good point when she states that people expect communication to be clear. They expect when you're asked a question, you get an answer. And the person who struggles with stuttering, who may know what they want to say, in fact, probably do know what they want to say, still have certain words, certain consonants that are harder for them to speak clearly, especially when feeling any pressure. But let's get to the anticipation of what others might feel about her, her fear of their laughter or being laughed at. 
What I've discovered about my own panic disorder, my own performance anxiety, my own fear of shaking in front of people or my voice quivering, is really more about the pressure I put on myself. I recently was asked to do a workshop where I spoke both in the morning and the afternoon. So it was the same material, but they wanted me to present it twice. What happened was that I had used up so much energy in the morning session that I had very little to give in the second. And thus my anxiety grew and grew about how I was going to come across, and it grew more intense. So I did something very different about it this time. As I myself keep learning how to handle my own anticipatory anxiety, I asked for a stool to sit on. (laughs) Seems simple, doesn't it? And I did most of the afternoon presentation seated on the stool, telling my audience that I was going to sit because I had some back issues and some anxiety issues. All of that was true. There was not a blink of an eye. There was not laughter. There was some head nodding. There actually was no problem. And I presented standing up occasionally, but then going back and sitting down. I have no idea if this example could translate into this listener's world, but I wonder if she worked on accepting that even with all the speech therapy she has sought, that for some reason this stuttering is still a problem for her. If she were more open about it, what would that be like? The other suggestion I have for her is to work with a therapist who would help her look for any kind of trauma that could be associated with the stammering or the stuttering. Could there possibly be some fears around having her voice heard or having a voice at all? There's another poem that speaks to the need, not for control, but the need for acceptance of what comes into your life. Written by a 13th century poet and religious philosopher born in Afghanistan and who lived in Turkey, his name is Rumi, very well known here in the United States and I'm sure worldwide. His works have been altered to fit Western culture, which is sort of disappointing, but their message speaks to acceptance rather than anxiety, flexibility instead of control. And here's a poem called The Guest House, speaking of home. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. So, my challenge to you today is if you're at home with your worry, if you're at home with your anxiety, if you're somebody who just has such a hard time making a decision, realize you may have gotten a little too comfortable with that. And your home, instead of being some welcome place, some safe haven, has actually turned in to its own kind of prison or cage. If you have any questions, please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. Thank you once again for being here. It means so much to me. I got an email this week from someone who's reading my book, and she asked me such a great question about one of the exercises. And I loved that she felt comfortable to really just write me and tell me. And actually, her question was very good and one that I need to take into account as I write a new book. 
Yes, that's right. I'm writing another book. We'll see what happens. I'll let you know. The book that's out there now is Perfectly Hidden Depression. You can get it anywhere you buy books. You can also find us now on YouTube. If you look up the Self Work Podcast by Dr. Margaret Rutherford or with Dr. Margaret Rutherford on YouTube, you could actually watch me <laughs> and watch my guests. My single episodes are not video, but believe me, there are a lot of interviews there. So let me know what you think. We need to work on SEO and all that stuff, the technical part of YouTube. But So we're baby YouTubers, but I'm glad to be there. And of course, you can subscribe to see what else is there. And subscribe to DrMargaretRutherford.com. If you do that, what happens is you get a weekly newsletter. That's it, weekly, with the new podcast and the new blog post. It's a really helpful way to keep up with what's going on here at SelfWork and with me. Thank you so much for being here. Please take very good care of yourself, your family, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been SelfWork.